You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the third Sunday of Advent and the text which this morning is taken from Isaiah 28, we're first going to read from the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 10, beginning at verse 1 to the end of that chapter. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle, because the Lord is with them. They will fight and overthrow the horsemen. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. The Ephraimites will become like mighty men, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely, I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands, they will remember me. They and their children will survive, and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued, and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down, and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. And then we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Peter writes, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, 
But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our text this morning on this third Sunday of Advent is taken from Isaiah chapter 28, beginning at verse 7 and ending at verse 22. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast? For it is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the grave. We have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie, our refuge and falsehood, our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord The Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, security is a priceless thing. It also is a much overlooked thing. Well, what do I mean? Well, imagine living centuries ago, for example, in Europe, 
As a child, you see your parents bringing some of your brothers and sisters to the grave who were either stillborn or died in infancy. And as you get older, you watch as your town is attacked, conquered, and burned to the ground. Later, the plague comes to town and many, many people die. And when you're older, famine stalks the land and there is hunger everywhere. Growing up in such a world is tough. It brings with it all sorts of worries, concerns, anxieties, and insecurities. And it prevents you from enjoying life. Your guard is always up. You wonder constantly about what next is coming down the road and going to run like a steamroller over you and flatten out your life. When will the next disaster strike? What else is going to devastate my life? Now, for most of us, a world like this is rather strange. Today, infant mortality is almost unheard of in North America. Attacking armies just don't seem to happen anymore, at least not around us. Plagues are pretty much a thing of the past. Famine, well, we've never known that, have we? At least most of us. Judy, this world of destruction, this world always hanging on the thread is a world we don't know. But I want to remind you this morning that God's people of old did. God's people in both Israel and Judah did. Look, for example, at the book of Isaiah. You can read about it in this particular part of Scripture almost everywhere. It was a time of great tumult, of great unrest, of great insecurity. So just how do people cope? How do God's people cope in such times? How do they manage to go on, to survive, to endure? Well, there really is only one way. When all is said and done, there's only one way to keep going on, and that is by going on in faith in the promises of the Lord God Almighty. Yes, and then I might add, of all the promises of God, there is especially one promise, one Advent promise that gives great hope and confidence. And that's the promise of a very special Messiah. So I preached to you this morning on the theme, the Stone Messiah. We're going to first of all listen to a rather scathing denunciation, as you could tell from our scripture reading. Then there comes a surprising revelation and finally a rather saving invitation. Well, beloved, last time when we looked at Isaiah chapter 11, we saw that the enemy was Assyria. Now, some years later, a new enemy is rearing its ugly head. This enemy is called Babylon. So the people of God find themselves threatened again. So what do they do? Well, as far as we know, nothing. Perhaps some of them pray, but for the rest, nothing. 
But still, their leaders do do something. They decide to enter into an alliance with Egypt. It's called power politics. If you can't beat them, then you find a nation somewhere that is just as powerful, you think, and you cozy up to it, and you make an alliance with it. And that's what Judah did. It went bowing and scraping to the king or the pharaoh of Egypt, and it found refuge. In him. What about God, you wonder? Why it would appear that God is not even in the picture. And it shows. You know, you can really tell that that God is not in the picture because our text opens and you and I are allowed, as it were, to peek into a party that is going on among the bigwigs in Jerusalem. Now, what kind of a party is it? Well, you would think it would be a party with great food, with lavish entertainment, with finely dressed people. But actually, it's nothing of the sort. Rather, it's a drunken, disgusting, barroom-like scene that we have before us. Read the description of verse 7. It's all about people staggering around under the influence of too much wine, reeling from the effects of too much beer. It's all about tables covered with filth and vomit. In short, this is just about the most degrading thing that you'll ever see. But you know, that's not all for... Who is doing the staggering and who is doing the reeling? It are none others, note very carefully, than the priests and the prophets of Judah. Believe it or not, this party is not composed of lowlifes and losers. These are the leaders of the nations. These are the religious leaders of the nation. And Isaiah says they're drunker than a bunch of skunks. And it shows. It shows in their visions or their claim to visions. It shows in the fact that they cannot even see see straight, much less think straight, and not make straight decisions either. They're so stoned out of their minds that they cannot even get their words out. I'll give you a straight answer. And so here you are, here we all are, witnesses to a besotted affair. But then lo and behold, suddenly the prophet Isaiah arrives. The drunken prophets and priests do not see much, but they see him. And notice they turn on him with a vengeance. And they accuse him of being a simpleton. If you take the words of our text, really they come down to this. You're nothing more than a dumb and boring prophet. All you ever do is teach us simple stuff You treat us as if we were a bunch of snot-nosed kids. Your sermons are so childish. They're all about doing this and doing that and obeying this rule and that rule. 
And now, of course, this accusation is nothing new. Ever since the dawn of human history, people have had itching ears. They grow tired of God's truths and they want to hear so-called really deep, sophisticated, educated opinions. They don't want God, any God, telling them what to believe. They want to decide for themselves. And indeed, they find their speculations much more sophisticated and educated than any of the revelations of God. Why, still today, you can find those kind of people around. Make reference to the Bible. And they respond with a condescending smile, with a quick dismissive wave of the hand, and with a tone that smacks of disdain. There is nothing to be learned from that book. We've outgrown God and all those who claim to speak for Him. We know so much more. We see so much deeper. We understand so much better. Now that's the kind of attitude that riles up the prophet Isaiah. And notice he fires back at them and he says, fine, you don't like my speech? You don't like my sermons? God will soon use foreign speech on you. He will show you that my simple sermons were not even simple enough. But you didn't do what I told you. You didn't follow the rule that I laid out. The little that I taught you was even too much for you. If you had listened to my simple teaching, you would have been spared, but your arrogance will lead to disaster. It will lead to your dismantling and your downfall. Enough said. Well, there's even more coming. Notice the Lord has more to say to them. He calls these leaders scoffers. That's probably about the worst insult in the Old Testament. If you're a scoffer. And he mocks their schemes and he accuses them of having entered into a covenant with death and making an agreement with the grave. Now you may wonder what that's all about. And it has to be said that we cannot say with absolute certainty there is a whole school of interpretation which says this is nothing more than pointed prophetic sarcasm. But you know, I think it's more than that. I think what's really happened here in our text is that Israel, the people of God, have taken a page out of the religion of their new ally, Egypt. They have dived into sorcery and they have made an agreement with the gods of the underworld. For look at how they're boasting. As a result of this covenant, this agreement, they're, they're puffed up with pride and arrogance. They, they now assume that they are immune to whatever Babylon will try to do to them. They think that their covenant with death, their agreement with the grave, will somehow save them. It's like their good luck charm. It'll protect them, it'll hide them, it'll make them secure. Now, in some ways, all of that's not so strange. 
Obviously, Israel looks in strange quarters for security, but, but you know, is that really so different today as to where people look for security? We still manage to look sometimes and most often in the most ridiculous of places and at the most ridiculous of people. For example, how many people today haven't found a new angle? They've placed or they've learned to place their trust in gold. Never mind money. Governments can print lots of money. But gold. And you know gold today is $1,400 an ounce and it's rising. And a lot of people are buying it for their future security. Or else they, they place their trust in conferences. Last week the world gathered in Cancun for another climate conference. And of course, there is nothing wrong with nations getting together and trying to solve global problems. But you know, it's so often hard to separate the reality from the hype. As if conferences will save the world. Or what about trusting and having your security in people? You know, I sometimes think that one of the reasons why a great number of Americans today can't stand President Barack Obama is because he has not turned out to be the kind of savior that they thought they were electing. You see, we need our security blankets. We'll invent them if necessary. We can't live without them. Listen, God knows that. Our Maker knows us so well. And so what does our Maker do in this time of great insecurity? Why in our text He, you'll notice, points to Himself first of all and finally to His Son as the only true and lasting source of security anywhere. Look at verse 16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. As an aside comment, have you ever noticed that God loves rocks? That He refers to rocks a lot? That He compares Himself to rocks? That He has other people compare Him to rocks? In Genesis 49, Jacob calls Him the rock of Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses calls Him the rock and adds a little later, their rock is not like our rock. And in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah says, there is no rock like our God. And in 2 Samuel 22, David exclaims, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my Savior. And then, beloved, there are all those references to rocks in the Psalms. Psalm 18, 19, 28, 31, 42, 62, 71, 78, 89, 92, 94, 95. 
And it goes on. Our God loves rocks. But more than anything else, He loves being compared to a rock. And why is that? Because He and He alone is the only one who can and does give real security to His people. He's the only one on whom you and I can truly build our lives. The only sure foundation. Of course, you can build your life on other people. But remember that in the end, they either lie or they die. Or you can build your security on gold or money or stocks or bonds or property, but you can't, I remind you as if it hasn't penetrated yet, you can't take it with you and cash it in at the pearly gates. Or you can build your life on modern philosophies and ideologies and ideas. But God is not into saving smart people just because they're smart. In the end, all of those options are options of sand. You cannot build anything lasting on them. When the storms of life come, as they surely will, they will huff and puff and they'll blow your house down. Now, only a life built on the rock, and that's not Newfoundland, only a life built on the rock will stand tall and prevail. Or to put it in New Testament terminology, only a life built on this rock and on that other rock called a cornerstone. We'll stand. You know, it's interesting to see how the rock language of the Old Testament flows into fulfillment in the New Testament. And here already in Isaiah 28, God himself calls himself a rock or a stone. But notice, notice he also refers to a precious cornerstone. And look again, and actually what you, what you cannot fail to see is that God compares himself here not even so much to a rock as to a rock layer. A mason. A stone layer. He says of himself, see I lay a stone in Zion. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Our rock is also the great Rock layer. What does that mean? Well, it means that God, the rock, is busy building. You don't bother with a cornerstone unless you are building something rather significant. And you don't bother with a precious, priceless cornerstone unless you're building something really, really special. And he is. Here in the Old Testament, God is building a people. 
He's erecting a spiritual house. But that spiritual house needs a special kind of rock on which to rest. It needs a unique cornerstone. Yes, and that's what it receives in Jesus. For Jesus, Jesus Christ alone is that cornerstone. He's that cornerstone, but then you might even want to add that cornerstone with a bit of a strange history. Psalm 118 prophesies that the builders will reject this stone. That the leaders of Israel and Judah will want nothing to do with him. That they will hate him and despise him, dismiss him, and even kill him. But no matter. For the rock is looking after him. The psalmist says that the Lord is the one who will take the rejected stone and make it into the capstone, the cornerstone, the most important stone of all. And the psalmist concludes by saying, the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord takes that rejected stone and makes it the greatest stone Messiah imaginable. Yes, and as we have read much later, the Apostle Peter agrees and hooks into this when he says, as you come to him, that living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You may be rejected by the world, but God will use you and promote you. Just like he did with his son. There's only one rock. There's only one living cornerstone. There's only one spiritual house. There's only one way to build your life and be eternally secure. Yes, and that, beloved, is now what the prophet Isaiah comes to tell Judah. He reminds them about God as their rock, not Egypt, not their leaders. And he prophesies about the coming cornerstone. Their lives may be terribly insecure at the moment. But he says a day is coming, a child is coming, a cornerstone is coming who will anchor, stabilize, secure, strengthen, and support their lives. As no one else can. Yes, God says Isaiah will do this. But yet he will not do it instantly or automatically. The first, you people are going to have to be patient for a little while. And you're going to have to hang on for your lives. For judgment is coming. Hard, harsh 
judgment. Isaiah says God is going to use an overwhelming scourge as a flood to sweep away all the filth, the corruption, the contempt. He will use it to show them that their covenant with death and their agreement with the grave is utterly useless. And finally, he will use this scourge of all things to reestablish righteousness and justice. And don't be deceived in the process, Isaiah warns. You will not find rest anywhere else. Your bed is too short to stretch out on. And neither will you be able to hide anywhere. The blanket is too narrow to wrap around you and to cover you. You cannot escape the scourge. Of course, you may wonder, who does that refer to? It refers to a foreign power, most likely Babylon. For God is going to use that foreign power to discipline Judah, to cleanse her, to redeem her. At Mount Parazim and in the Valley of Gibeon, he fought with his people against foreign armies. Now he's going to fight against his people through foreign armies. So the people of Judah need to prepare themselves. They need to dig in. They need to realize what's coming. But they also need to do something else. They need to repent. Notice Isaiah says, stop your mocking. That's another way of saying, take stock of your lives, confess your sins, turn from your idols, and seek the Lord while he may be found. In other words, forget about trusting in your leaders. Forget about trusting in, in Egypt. Forget about trusting in your fancy covenant with death and your superstitious agreement with the grave. Forget about all your false gods. There's only one way to go. And that's back to the Lord. Go back to your rock. And at the same time, look forward to the coming cornerstone. Place all your confidence and your hope and your trust in your living rock Messiah. For He can, and He alone, will deliver you. A few chapters later, Isaiah will write these beautiful words. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I'll repeat that. In repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength. How true. Beloved, Advent begs many questions. Do you know who is coming? Do you know why he is coming? Do you know what should be the result of his coming? What impact it should have in your lives? Well, this should give you rest. 
and trust. Rest in the Lord your rock. Trust in your coming rock Messiah. And if you do, you will be strong and secure. And you will stand no matter how hard the wind blows or the tempest beat upon your life. Because you'll be anchored in the rock of our salvation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.